Welcome everyone, so good to have all of you at all of our churches today, Bluntstown, Chipley, and Mariana, as we are in our third week of our series entitled, Take Your Life Back. Um, I just pray that all of you, all of our camps had just an incredible time of, of singing and, and praising God as we did on the Mariana campus, because as I, I, as I sat and thought there, you know, I oftentimes hear people talk about God, help us get closer to you, and as we sang, I just wanna remind all of us it's not about us getting closer to God. It's about us realizing how close God is to us. That he lives inside of us. He dwells. We are his temple. We are his sanctuary. And he dwells in our hearts. And that's why music is such a powerful tool. It reminds us that God is not just out there as God who created everything. But God is with me. He indwells me. And that's why we worship, and that's why we sing to uh, remind us how close God is to us. Now, before we jump into today's talk, because I could go on a whole other tangent right now about worship um, and singing, but um, we're not going to do that. Um, every fourth Sunday of the month, uh, we give you the opportunity to go above and beyond and show all of our communities that we're for them. We've been calling this our $4 for others, and I know that doesn't sound like a lot of money, um, but that's $4 for each person who attends our campuses um, of the fourth Sunday. But together, it really does add up for a great blessing for your community because every dollar that you give on the fourth Sunday goes back into your community. So here's where your $4 is going this month. It is gonna be going to the local food pantries in our communities. And I can tell you from conversations with the people who lead these food pantries, they are hurting more than they've ever hurt the price of food, the cost of goods. Um, we had one food pantry telling us that they are not even getting canned goods anymore. It's just incredible um, uh, what they're needing. So here's how you can give. There was an envelope that was in your chair. You need the auditorium. You can put money in that envelope. You can drop it in the giving boxes on your way out of your auditorium today. Or you can scan that QR code that's on there and you can give through our app. So you can go ahead and do that right now. But also this month, there's another way that you can be for others through serving. And that is you can bring items that you can find when you scan the QR code on the back of your seat and click food items, or you can use a card that was inside the flap of the four envelope for your list, and you could use that for your shopping list. You can bring these back to your campus anytime during the week, or you can bring them back next Sunday, and we'll have a place where you can drop those food items off. So again, I just wanna say, hey, thank you so much for being a church that is all about helping our community understand that we are for them, and through the way that we show them we're for them, we help them understand that God is for them. So I can't wait to celebrate the results of your giving uh, for this month. Now, there's something else that I wanna celebrate with you. Last Sunday was the official launch of our Wakala campus. There were over 200 people there on last Sunday, so it was absolutely amazing day. Yep. Here are a few couple pictures. Um, Gavin Adams, <clears throat> I had him be our secret shopper. I flew him in and had him just kind of evaluate the experience since I wasn't gonna be able to be there. And uh, he said it was absolutely one of the best uh, church launches he's ever seen. He said, Paul, you guys have launched a healthy church. And so I just wanna say thank you so much for being a church that has helped not only about leading people in our communities into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, but thank you for being a church that is also about the great commission that is Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world. 
world. So it's amazing what God is doing in and through our church family. I'm really excited as we continue to move forward, as we continue to lean into Jesus and just allow him to take us to new levels of understanding and seeing and living out what he's called us to do as a church. So go ahead and grab your RCC app, pull it up, and if you hit right at the very top, it'll say talk notes or today's service. You can hit on that. It'll take you to the talk notes. Um, That makes it easy for you. so uh, do that. So it gives you everything that you need. Just everything we put on the screen is already there. You can follow along uh, in the U version if you want to do that. Or if you got your Bibles and, you're pay- and you write on paper, grab your Bibles and uh, let's go in today's talk. Because we are in week three of our series entitled Take Your Life Back. Now, two weeks ago when we started this series, I shared with you an idea that John Eldridge introduced in his new book, Resilient. I'd like to remind you that all of us have something in common with camels. And that is, camels are known for their extraordinary strength, stamina, and resilience. So they can carry, as I've said, they carry heavy loads across scorching, scorching 100 miles desert for weeks without water. But their strength, their stamina, and their resilience are also their Achilles heel. So for example, they can walk thousands of miles with seamless endurance, and then suddenly, without warning, they will collapse and die because there was no way for them to tell when their reserves were being depleted. And here's how we are similar. We often get so caught up in trying to survive the madness of modern life, to keep up with the pace of the madness of modern life, that we don't realize that our emotional and our spiritual Reserves are being depleted. In fact, I love the way that John Eldridge introduces this idea. He says, human souls have an Achilles heel too. We have an astonishing capacity to rally in the face of calamity and duress. We rally and rally, and then one day we discover there's nothing left. Our soul simply says, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore as we collapse into the discouragement of depression or just the blankness or numbness of soul. You don't want to push your soul to that point, but everything about the hour we're living in is pushing our souls to that very point. And while all of us, we understand it, we know, we feel our souls being pushed to the point of collapse, the truth is most of us, we just want to get our lives back. We just want life to be good again. And whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I think we all feel this basic desire. We just wish that there would be a way that life could be good again and it could stay good. So to begin our conversation today, I I wanna start with a question. And I need you to be completely honest with yourself about what comes to your mind immediately when I ask the question. Because many of you, you're going to be like me. You're going to be tempted to edit the first answer that pops in your mind because it's not going to feel very spiritual. You're thinking, if I ever told this to somebody, it's not going to feel very spiritual. It's not going to make me look very mature. But here's the thing. I want you to think of the very first, or just let it be real and raw, because if you don't, it may rob you of an opportunity that might create a life-changing discovery for yourself when it comes to understanding What is going on in your soul? So everybody ready, all of our churches, for some very self-honesty. Here we go. What would make your life good again for you? So what immediately came to your mind when I asked that question? 
Now, if you're like me, it might have been a solution to a problem. Uh, another thing that it could have been is it could have been something like, hey, my life would be good again if this relationship, if this work situation, if this health challenge would get fixed or get changed in my life. Or maybe for you, the answer was more future-oriented. You know, if I can just get through the next few weeks, if I can just get through the next few months, if I can just get through this season of life, then life will be good again. Or maybe your thoughts gravitated toward having more money so that you're out from under financial pressure, or maybe that, you know, taking that trip that you've been holding out to take. Like, what's your first reaction when you think about what would make life good again for you? Now, as we said last week, this question, like last week's question, is essential for us to think about because as John Eldry says, he says, the longing for things to be good again is one of the deepest yearnings of the human heart. It has slumbered in the depths of our souls ever since we lost our truer home. For our hearts remember Eden. Our longing for life to be good again will be the battleground Every choice, every decision you make, it's going to be spiritual warfare. It's going to be the battleground for our heart. And then he goes on to say, how you shepherd this precious longing, and if you shepherd it at all, because most of us don't, will determine your fate in this life and the life to come. It has eternal impact. So again, what's your first reaction when you think about what would make life good again for you? And here's what I bet is true for every one of us. I know it's true for me. My first thought to that question is always self-focus. My first thought is I need something that I don't have to take my life back for my life to be good again. See, our sense of scarcity, scarcity, will I have enough or will I be enough? Our fear of a lack of abundance, will I be provided for? Can God really be trusted? Will he really take care of me? Our fear of not being significant, will my life count? Will my life matter? Those fears, they always drive us to be self-focused, to try to find some sense of meaning and purpose from life from within ourselves or looking at ourselves or getting something for ourselves. But what if that's not the answer at all? Because it's not. And this is why Jesus gives us a different kind of invitation, an invitation to all of us who are weary and burdened to take his yoke up on us up and learn from him. See, Jesus knows that it is human nature to chase that. I want life to be good again feeling so hard that we destroy our souls. Because see, we go through life thinking there's gotta be more, there's gotta be more, and we think that we're just tired and that we need a break when actually that's not our deepest problem. See, you can fix tired with a few naps. The problem is worse than tired. The problem is we are empty spiritually in our souls. Our reserves are depleted and there's no amount of isolation or destination that will replenish or refuel your soul. The only one who can replenish, replenish our souls is the one who created your soul. And that's why we're leaning in to say, how do we learn the rhythm of following Jesus in every area of our life? In fact, I love how the message paraphrase 
shares this invitation. I'm sharing it with you every week because it's just so powerful because this is Jesus' solution to our problem. He says, listen, are you tired? Are you worn out, burnt out from religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I just never get tired of this phrase, learn the unforced rhythms of grace because folks, that's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to take his yoke on you and learn from him. See, this is all Jesus' invitation to just come and say, follow me. And here's the thing that I've learned over the last two or three years coming out of the pandemic. We haven't done real well at following Jesus. And you know how I know that? Because our souls are so depleted. We haven't done so well at leaning into Jesus, being with Jesus. It's why our souls are so just scorched with scarcity. So as I've said for the past few weeks, Jesus' invitation to follow is not just an invitation. Hey, I want you to just to believe in something. It's not some life theory. He's not giving us an invitation to even just become a Christian by praying some kind of prayer and then we've done our deal. No, he's inviting us to come to him, to adopt his lifestyle, his way of life. See, follow me means to organize my life from this day forward around three primary goals. And I share them with you each week in case you miss a week and just to remind you how important they are. See, It's three primary goals where I make Jesus' way of life the unforced rhythm of my life. And the first one of those goals is I just have to be with Jesus. You have to spend time with him to know him. And and I'm challenging people more and more because I've been doing this for the last year and a half of my life. It's just making sure that I have time in the morning and the evening. And in the last while, I've added even in midday. It's like I just need that 10-minute, five-minute pause with Jesus to spend time with him, to refocus. I mean, if you think about, and I know this is a total tangent here, but if you think about Daniel in the Old Testament, it says three times he prayed. That's why he went to the lion's den, right? Because he prayed three times a day. But if you think about the impact of Daniel's life, he went through more trauma. He's taken from his home as a teenager. And he's taken as a captive. But for the next 80 years of Daniel's life, he influences four empires for God. It's incredible in a pagan nation. And if we wanna have that kind of influence in our world, you gotta spend time with Jesus so that you can become like Jesus. See, the more that you're with Jesus, the more you'll think like him, the more you'll value what he values and what his heart is will become your heart and his rhythms will become your rhythms. And that leads you to do what Jesus would do if he were you, because now he's working, he's living and dwelling you, and you do it out of an unforced rhythm of grace. See, most of us, when we read and we study the life of Jesus, even like the passage we're gonna be looking at today, that's force for us. What Jesus does, as we're gonna look at today, it's an unforced rhythm of his life, but for us, it's forced. So we start living like Jesus would live if he were in our shoes. And I can promise you, Jesus says, hey, here's my promise to you. And Jesus keeps his promise. If we learn to do this, even though life is hard and will always be hard, we will find rest 
for our souls. We will find replenishment for our souls. We'll find fuel for our reserves. So following Jesus, here's what you'll discover. Following Jesus takes us in the opposite direction of how we normally answer that question a moment ago, what would it take for life to be good again? See, following Jesus takes us away from focusing on ourselves and finding things for ourselves in order for life to be good again. Now, here's a question some of you might be asking. You're going, well, how does not focusing on me or focusing on myself less, how could that help me take my life back and make life good again? Well, you're not alone in that question. See, Jesus' closest friends, his disciples, they struggled with this same idea as well. Matter of fact, a big part of the reason why the 12 disciples stuck with Jesus for those three years through the good times and the bad times is because they believed that Jesus was their ticket to greatness, their ticket to significance and success. See, they incorrectly assumed that Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman rule and then he was going to set up his new kingdom here on this earth. And guess who he was most likely to pick to rule with him, to give some privilege and prestige and power? Well, yeah, his best friends, right? Isn't that how it's supposed to work? I mean, it's why Jesus, many of Jesus' teachings didn't make sense to them. See, like us, they heard everything through the lens of what's in it for me? What's in it for me? And let me just say, when you read scripture through the lens of what's in it for me, it doesn't make sense to you. You will always go looking for Eden in the madness of modern life. So on the night of Jesus' arrest, they're in the upper room of a home and they're enjoying a Passover meal together. It's been an absolutely extraordinary week. I mean, in the last seven days, Jesus has brought a man back to life who'd been dead for like three days. I mean, that's pretty phenomenal, right? Hundreds of people witness it and they begin to follow Jesus as well. So the crowd's growing. And then Jesus, he travels in Jerusalem with his disciples and he's met by several hundred people lining the streets celebrating him as the Jews' long-awaited Messiah. So everybody's talking about Jesus. Momentum has never been stronger for Jesus. And the disciples are absolutely confident. This is the moment when Jesus is going to take over and he's going to overthrow Roman rule and establish his kingdom. But Jesus had a completely different thing on his mind that night. He knows what's coming. He's told his disciples about his suffering and his death. Those things are near, but they don't get it. Because they keep listening to everything that Jesus says through, well, what's in it for me? So on this night, this is his last opportunity to help his disciples get what he's been trying to teach them. But he doesn't say anything. He does something. And John, who was in the room, he recorded this experience. Here's what he says happened. If you got your Bibles, go to John chapter 13, beginning in verse one. Here's what he says happened that evening. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. So John's saying, looking back, it's really clear now that Jesus knew exactly what was before him. He knew the pain, he knew the suffering, he knew the agony that awaited him. So what was on his mind when he understood, he knew that the hour was here. 
What was on his mind? Well, what do you do when you know that death awaits you? Here's what Jesus did, last part of the verse. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Or some translations say it, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Meaning his focus was not on himself. It was on loving well those that were in the room with him. Now notice verse two, here's what it says. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. I, mean, I want you to think about this. The betrayer is sitting at the table with Jesus. So surely Jesus isn't gonna love Judas to the full extent, is he? I mean, would he show him the full extent of his love? I mean, he's a betrayer. John continues, notice what he says in verse three. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Don't miss that. Now, he's in control in this moment, sitting in the room. He has full control of the universe again. All power, the most powerful person being in the universe. Jesus knew that the Father put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So John says, hey, let me just explain to you how Jesus was able to love us. Jesus did what he did, not because we were so lovable. I mean, it was, certainly wasn't because we deserved it. He, he did what he did because he knew who he was. He knew his purpose and he knew his place. He knew who he was and he knew whose he was. Now, here's why this is so important for all of us to understand. You might want to take a picture of this or write it down. The depth to which you can love is determined by the extent to which you are secure. The depth to which you can love is determined to the extent to which you are secure. It's not determined by the people around you or what they're going to do. It's determined by to the level of security you have in your life. See, insecure people are self-focused people, and self-focused people can't love well. In fact, insecure people feel like life will only be good again when they're in the spotlight or all the focus is on them or they're getting their way. But Jesus, he was completely secure in his relationship with the Father and who he was, and so he had the ability to keep his focus on others even when life was difficult. Even when death awaited him at the hands of a betrayer. So he had the ability to sit in this moment that could easily have been all about him and make it about others. Listen, that confidence and security, it let him show the full extent of his love. And so I want you to notice how he did that. Verse four, he says, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water in the basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So foot washing was a common custom in that era. And so whenever you entered in a home, what would happen, a common practice during that time was because humans weren't the only ones who traveled the dirt roads of Israel, you like had cattle and horses and donkeys and sheep. And I mean, they, they, did, they did their thing on the road as well, right? In fact, if you ever followed a horse in a parade, you know, you better watch where you step, right? So 
when the first century folks were traveling from one place to another, it was impossible not to end up at your destination with dirty feet. That's why at the home of every prominent individual, whenever you would get there, there would be a servant at the front door who would greet you, welcome you, and then they wash your feet before you entered into the house. But apparently, on this night, no servant was at the door. And no disciple was willing to humble themselves enough to wash the feet of the other disciples. So they walk into this dinner table and they're waiting for someone else to serve them. They're making it all about themselves. In fact, they would rather sit at a table with dirty, stinky dung on their feet and blame other people for the smell in the room than to humble themselves and wash each other's feet. And that's when Jesus got up. He grabbed the towel and the water basin and he walked their way, notice verse six. He came into Simon Peter who said, Lord, are you gonna wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, Peter, you still haven't figured this out. You still think life will only be good if life revolves around you and you get to have your plan and your agenda and your way. See, you still think it's only gonna be good if you're the focus of attention. But that's what Peter didn't get. He said, you don't get what I'm doing right now. But in a few days, you're gonna get it. In a few days, you're gonna fully understand. Everything I've been trying to do in a few days is going to make sense. And then when he finishes washing Peter's feet, God in human flesh, he washes Andrew's feet, he washes James' feet, then John's feet, then Matthew's feet, and Thomas's feet, and Judas's feet. Yes, the very Judas who's about to betray him, the one from who our human perspective least deserves love. And Jesus washed his feet. And after Jesus had finished going around the table, washing the feet of all 12, he puts the water in the towel back. And here's what he says in verse 12. Do you understand what I've done for you? Ask them. You call me teacher or rabbi and Lord. Remember, Jesus is saying, this is my yoke that I'm asking you to take. This is my rhythm for life. And as a follower of Jesus, this becomes our rhythm for life as well. We're taking on the yoke of the rabbi who's teaching us. And rightly so, for that is what I am. Now I, your Lord and teacher, your rabbi whose yoke you're learning have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. This is my unforced rhythm of life. I don't want you to miss what Jesus is teaching at this moment. Jesus is teaching them that if you're gonna find meaning, purpose, and fulfillment in life, you have to realize that meaning, purpose, and fulfillment are not found where you think they are, where I think it is. Jesus is teaching them that meaning and purpose it is only found through unconditional, sacrificial love. 
And how that is practical to us is that Jesus is teaching us that meaning, purpose, and fulfillment are found when you are graciously willing to deal with the dust in and on the people's lives around you by serving them graciously. See, because from Jesus' perspective, the true test of following him is not just loving Jesus. It's loving Judas. The true test of following Jesus is not loving Jesus. It's loving Judas. As an unforced rhythm of our life. Think about this. Jesus, who's God in human flesh, he is demonstrating what it looks like to live out the unforced rhythm of love. See, Jesus in this moment, he's saying this, to take your life back, you must learn the unforced rhythm of a life that loves as Jesus loved. That in the moment you understand someone's gonna betray them, you're willing to lean into the dirt and the dust, or betray you, you're willing to lean into the dirt and the dust in their life and show them love. I mean, think about it. In this moment, Jesus is demonstrating two important rhythms of grace to us. First of all, love is the decision to serve when I deserve to be served, but I do it out of grace. It's full of grace. See, Jesus is the rabbi, he's the teacher, he's the leader. More than that, he's God in human flesh. If anybody deserved to be served, it was Jesus. But he didn't leverage his position, he didn't leverage his power, he didn't leverage anything and demand to be served. Listen, when we demand to be served, we are not loving like Jesus. We understand we're not living in that unforced rhythm of love. And the second thing he teaches us is this, love is the decision to serve even when I don't believe they deserve it. See. When Jesus washes his disciples' feet, he, noticed, he knows that Judas is gonna betray him, that Peter's gonna deny him, and the other disciples are gonna abandon him. And Jesus demonstrates that meaning and purpose and fulfillment are found through unconditional, sacrificial, other people-focused love. Listen, God created you on purpose, with a purpose, but your meaning and purpose and fulfillment are not found where you think. You can't find meaning and purpose and fulfillment by focusing on yourself. See, it's most likely not found in however you answer the question, what will make my life good again? Here's where Jesus is saying you find meaning and purpose. He says, meaning and purpose are found across the border of what's in it for me. It's found when you cross over the border into other-centered, servant-hearted, forgiven, advanced, the kingdom that Jesus introduced. See, that's the kingdom Jesus introduced. It's a kingdom of servant-hearted people who are other-centered, who forgive in advance, that love in the moment, even to their betrayer, leans in as an unforced rhythm of grace. So in order to take your life back, you must learn the unforced rhythm of a life that loves as Jesus loved. That's why we have to be with Jesus. That's why we have to become like Jesus. Because until I spend so much time in the presence of Jesus and Jesus has permeated me, this will never be an unforced rhythm of grace in my life. Listen, in your most honest moment, 
you know that you were created for more than you. You you know that living for you is too small a purpose to live for. And when you lived for you, you were the most miserable you that you ever were. I mean, you know devoting yourself to you, it doesn't leave you fulfilled. It's like after you binge Netflix for eight or 10 hours and you get done and you go, ugh. So Jesus says, listen, if you wanna take your life back, then follow me and I'll lead you to a life that's good again. But the road there, it doesn't start with you. It starts with Jesus. It starts with making life about Jesus and being with Jesus and becoming like Jesus and doing like Jesus so that you can do for others what Jesus did. If I, your teacher, and Lord have done this, this is my yoke and I'll help you do it. So if you wanna take your life back, If you want life to be good again, I I just invite you to trust Jesus enough that you'll do something so counterintuitive. Would you shift your focus from trying to find life from yourself and focus it to Jesus and the people around you? Like in the middle of your pain and your heartache and your frustration and your discontentment and your boredom and your emptiness and your chaos, because I know that's where a lot of you find yourself right now. In the middle of all of that, in the middle of all those things that you want to achieve and all those milestones that you want to accomplish, because that's where some of you are at, would you turn your attention away from yourself and focus on being with Jesus and becoming like Jesus so that you can put your focus on others? Would you put a towel over your arm and follow the example of your rabbi? Would you take your eyes off yourself, put it on others, Would would you make serving others, even those who have betrayed you, denied you, abandoned you, the rhythm and the pattern of your life? Listen, would you stop complaining about the dust in their life and on their life? Would you stop complaining about the dung that they got in their life before they got to you? and graciously help them deal with it. Whatever washing their feet means. I'm telling you, if you will, a miracle will happen. In the course of serving others, especially those who have abandoned you, betrayed you, denied, some way hurt you, in the course of serving other people, I can tell you what happens. You'll, you'll find this sense of significance, this sense of meaning and fulfillment and purpose. You'll find satisfaction. You'll find a life that is so much better than what you have right now. Life won't be good again until Jesus' way of life becomes the rhythm of your life. So Jesus says, follow me and I'll fill up your empty soul. Follow me across the border of your kingdom, of your what's in it for me kingdom, into my kingdom, and do what love requires of you. Love one another as I have loved you. Jesus says, if you will follow me across that border and learn the unforced rhythms of grace as you walk with me, as you watch me, as you work with me, as you just hang out with me. So I can tell you, all of a sudden loving others, even those unlovely people in your life, will start to become an unforced rhythm of grace in your life. 
And that's how you find meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. Can't wait to finish this up next week and bring all this together. So let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I... <clears throat> I know all of us want to say we love Jesus, but it's pretty clear. Um, the true test of following you isn't loving Jesus. It's loving Judas. You're our teacher. You're our Lord, Jesus. And um, that was an unforced rhythm in your life. God, for many of us, it means there's so much time that we need to spend with you, being with you, learning from you, becoming like you as we, as we take your heart and your values to heart so that in those moments when we're dealing with that unlovely person, that unloving person. God, the unforced rhythm of our life will be like Jesus, just to lean in and help them deal with the dust in their life, the dung in their life. God, we want that. So we're just asking now, this week, that you'll help us to be with you so that we can become like you and then do what you would do if you were in our shoes out of an unforced rhythm of grace. Jesus, we need you. Oh, how we need you. Every hour of this week, we need you. Help us to realize how close you are so we can lean into your strength that dwells us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey everyone, don't forget, sign up for a group. Uh, you need each other as well as Jesus in this time. So we'll see you next week as we finish up the series.